0: Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of theMindRenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire Countryside here in the UK. And today on this the eleventh of february twenty fifteen, I'm pleased to welcome to the programme Dr. James Wonless, who is an associate professor of physics at Presbyterian College Clinton, South Carolina. His scientific interests centre in plasma physics, nonlinear dynamics and space weather. He holds degrees in Applied Mathematics and Physics from the University of Cape Town, a Master's in Geophysics from the University of Witwatersrand, and a PhD in Physics from the University of Alberta, Canada. Dr. Oneless has published uh, over 60 peer-reviewed scientific articles, mainly in the Journal of Geophysical Research and Geophysical Research Letters, and he has also published in Psychology and Medical Areas and popular Christian Journals. Dr. Wonless, thank you very much for joining us on The Mind Renewed.
1: Hi, Julian. Thank you. That's a very generous introduction
0: and you're going to have to correct me on the way I pronounce some of that the University of Witwatersrand how would you put that yourself?
1: I would call it the University of the Witwatersrand but I don't think anybody who doesn't speak Afrikaans can can, can do better than you did.
0: Lovely yes there's no way I'm going to even try to do that <laughs> um, now we're going to be talking today of course about a subject that is of particular concern to you which we've actually touched on a few times on the Mind Renewed over the past couple of years and that's the way in which modern environmentalism has been kind of hijacked in some ways by what we might call green religion – and I'm hoping that we'll get into some detail as well, what we mean by that in due course. But I want to start by asking you about you and your work, and in particular, this area of science that you're working in of space weather. Because uh, I don't know whether I'm right in this, but I suspect that a, a few of us might be under the impression that uh, space is empty. And uh, so, you know, the idea of space weather just doesn't make any sense. So <laughs> could mm-hmm. you start by telling us something you know, a bit more about yourself and this unusual subject that you're involved with?
1: Certainly, uh, my, my background uh, in my my graduate master's degree in South Africa was in geophysics, so I was studying geology and those kind of things. But became uh, aware that there was more out there. There were stars and <laughs> and things like that as well. I looked up a little and became familiar with the subject called space weather, which is relatively new. You know, the space age is only a few decades old, and space weather is the study of uh, all the way from the atmosphere up into outer space, which most people assume is full of nothing, but it's full of something that is called the plasma, it's the fourth state of matter, it's the most, actually, the most common state of matter in the universe, and we have in space certain events, we, we call them storms, you can think of them as hurricanes that go on in space, And there are also little tornadoes, if you like, that go on in space. And as we've got more and more assets in space and as we depend more and more on high technology, uh, this has become more important. And people have now been studying space weather for a few decades trying to understand how these storms, these hurricanes evolve, how they change and how they affect our power grids and our satellites and communications and things like that. So space weather has to do with all of that. And of course, the military is very interested in that. And anybody who has anything to do with satellites is very interested in that. And so too are communications companies and airlines. Airlines are are thinking about space weather a great deal and Mm -hmm. a number of others that I could mention.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Right, so it's not just what goes on in space, then it does have direct implications for events on this planet?
1: Correct, yeah. We've had a number of events in recent history that have affected us. They estimate the effects of a, of a severe space weather event would be the equivalent of a massive hurricane. So, for instance, in recent history, Hurricane Katrina, you, maybe not quite to that extent, but A worst case scenario could be as bad as that, maybe even worse, could you imagine if all our satellites went down and the New York Stock Exchange was no longer receiving any trades and the London Stock Exchange was down for a week or a month or something like that because suddenly everything that we've come to rely on based on this high technology is is out. We're remarkably dependent upon satellite technology and and high technology and it can all go out
0: actually there's an interview there in itself isn't there but i didn't (laughs) realize there's there's so much that we could talk about there but um another question i wanted to ask really before we get into the main subject is how does what you do in science relate to your christian faith and i'm asking this because you know there's often the impression that christian faith and science just don't mix so how do you relate the two
1: well It's not a matter of of oil and water at all for me. I've mingled with a number of high-profile scientists, and and interestingly enough, particularly in the realm in which I work, that is in in physics, one would be surprised, maybe the general public would be surprised at how many, I wouldn't say Christians, but generally speaking deists or, or believers in some greater being there are. And I think it's partly because we, we study the world in which we you know live more closely than, than most other people as physicists and you see that there are patterns and so on that simply cannot be explained from a purely naturalistic standpoint. It just doesn't make sense. So for myself, I, I haven't had very much pushback. In fact, the strongest pushback I've had. For my Christian faith, has been from people who are in the arts at the high level and the social sciences who think that the scientists have done away forever with this need for God.
0: But, yes. It's ironic, isn't it? Yes. Yeah,
1: so the sciences, physics in particular, I found are quite hospitable, if not to the Christian God, to the, the idea certainly of God in general, because it's very clear that we, we're dealing with a system that is almost like a, an enormous computer code written by some genius and we see this over and over again in our in our research and one has to explain this and explanations based on pure randomness or chance just are not mm-hmm. very satisfying not to me and not to many of my peers.
0: It's it's interesting because I've heard the theologian Keith Ward say something very similar about that with his work at Oxford, mingling with scientists there, and find that many of them do in fact believe in some kind of God, that their work does suggest that. It's very interesting you say a similar thing.
1: Yeah, John Polkinghorne is is somebody that Uh I've read a lot of. He, of course, is one of your compatriots, Mm -hmm. Um, He was a very high-level physicist who who ended up becoming an Anglican priest, and Isaac Newton, of course, the greatest of scientists, another Englishman, he he spent, I think, the last 12 years of his life studying the Bible and writing commentaries on the Bible, not because he had lost his marbles, but I think because his Christian faith really was the foundation upon which he launched out and, and found rational cause to actually investigate the world and expect Mm. that he could see patterns that made sense to him.
0: Yes, C.S. Lewis said something like his belief in God allowed him to, by that he was able to see everything else or understand everything else. I can't remember the exact quote, but something along those lines. Yes. Now, we're going to be talking, as I said, about this uh, modern environmentalism and how it's been affected by green religion, as we're calling it, but also how that compares and contrasts with a biblically-based view of the environment and our relationship to that as human beings. So I guess the first question that I have to ask you here, because necessarily you're going to be challenging some of the views of people who do define themselves as environmentalists, the question has to be, do you in any way consider yourself to be an environmentalist?
1: I wouldn't call myself so much an environmentalist if I was forced against the wall. I'd perhaps say I'm a common sense environmentalist, but I would prefer to call myself a conservationist in the classic sense, mainly because I think the environmental movement has become so hijacked. It's kind of like the word gay I love using the word, but every time I use it, somebody thinks I'm talking about something quite different. So I would prefer the word conservationist just because environmentalist has come to mean so many things for so many people. And when we lose accuracy in our language, we kind of lose the ability to communicate.
0: Yeah. Okay. So if we think of it as a different word, conservationist, then you do have concerns about the environment Mm. and how we relate to it then.
1: Absolutely. You know, the, there's no way that we can imagine that we're separate from the environment. The word environment actually stems from the French. It means surroundings. Everything, therefore, is our environment. We live and we move and we, and we exchange and modify our environment all the time. And obviously, we, we don't want to live in a pigsty, and so it's important for us to be concerned about how we affect and influence and shape the environment about us. And we have a responsibility. Uh, mm-hmm. I would agree, even with uh, some people who use religious terminology in terms of the environmental movement, that we have a moral obligation. Mm-hmm. Uh, although my reason for coming to that conclusion may be quite different. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, that, that's certainly interesting, because I'm going to bring up later the, the notion of the sacredness of creation, and a distinction perhaps we yeah. should draw between sacred in the sense of divine and sacred in the sense of God-given. But uh, that's something for a little later on. Perhaps it would be a good idea to get some impression of what is meant by green religion. Could you define green religion for us and describe how that gets expressed in many quarters of modern environmentalism?
1: Sure. It's it's a very difficult thing to pin down because it's become a very broad movement. Everybody wants to be green. It's very fashionable to be green. So you'll have people who would be quite opposed to uh, living in Los Angeles, let's say, who would consider themselves green, and yet, on the other hand, You'd have the Hollywood crowd who will be driving in their Priuses and they're all showing off how green they are, yet they have incredibly large carbon footprints and would not be considered green by any stretch of the imagination. So very difficult to pin down the movement. How is it somehow satisfying these various urges of extremely different people? But you could probably wrap it all up into a few pillars or a few essential sound bites, if you like, one of which is this idea that Mother Nature knows best therefore if human beings dare to modify their environment or change it that by definition is always bad human civilization therefore will always be in destructive conflict with what is good for the rest of nature that's one idea Uh, another common thread is that nature is sacred and that's a loaded word of course because you you'll have atheists who will call themselves green and who serve no other god but themselves Uh, and yet they would call nature sacred and I don't think they're doing it just to confuse people I I think they may be confused but they genuinely think that there's meaning in that perhaps it's it's kind of like um, maybe you've heard of this term it's Mm. very common here in the United States people will say I'm not religious but I'm spiritual (laughs) as if there's some difference
0: Mm. so
1: this idea of sacredness that you'll have people going out into the woods and they'll say that they had a sacred experience although they may not believe in any higher power per se Perhaps they ascribe sacredness as if Mother Nature herself is some higher power.
0: Yes, these uh, remind me of what Francis Schaeffer referred to as semantic mysticisms. So they have such a broad semantic range Mm. of the way that those words have developed in the culture that people can use the term and connote various meanings, perhaps with not even necessarily realizing that they're doing that. And it can mean fluidly different things to different people at different times. As you say, very difficult to pin down. Um, Are there any ways in which sort of the the classic doctrines such as sin and redemption and paradise and judgment and things like that actually get expressed in this green Mm. religious context?
1: Yes, certainly they do. I, I wrote the book, Resisting the Green Dragon, which is essentially, it's not a scientific tome by any means. It's it's a book which tries to explore the, the religious foundations, the philosophical foundations, the worldview of the Green Movement. And I actually have Al Gore, former vice president of the United States, to thank for that book. Because um, he had come to a, a scientific meeting at which I usually present some of my work and he had the plenary lecture there and told us that we as scientists all need to go out and, and be evangelists of this this global warming gospel that he was bringing to us. And when he said that I, as a Christian, want, of course, to do what is right by God and my fellow creature, and so I began to investigate what Al Gore had put me onto and, and found such an incredible depth of really lies and misconceptions and, and exaggerations and so on, and so I wrote that book to explore the, the worldview, the theology, the mm-hmm. politics, and the ethics of the environmental movement. and We find, uh, as I put it down in *Resisting the Green Dragon, a very clear one-to-one correspondence between various doctrines, particularly of the Christian faith. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the environmentalists would have that the gospel should be green. The gospel of Jesus Christ should be a green gospel. And what they mean by that is there's a doctrine of sin, whereas in the Bible it talks about sin as breaking God's command. In the environmental movement, sin would be, for instance, being in conflict with Mother Nature or driving a minivan or having more than 2.1 children, not recycling or not using plastic, whatever is de jure.
0: And along with that would go the sense of guilt. Oh, yes. If you do that, then you're guilty of doing those particular things, and therefore you need redemption some way, you need yes. some sort of atonement yes. with creation, mm-hmm. with nature, how, how would yes. you affect that?
1: In Al Gore's Nobel Prize speech, he got the Nobel Prize, of course, and I think it was 2007 for saving the planet by alerting everybody to this catastrophic global warming, he said that it was a moral problem, that we need to change the morality of human civilization. You know, if you fly an area, any airplane today, you'll, you'll see that mm. you could actually contribute a certain amount of money to offset your carbon footprint. It's almost like an indulgence. You know, in the the Roman Catholic Church, you formally could pay a certain amount of money and cha-ching, your, your sins mm-hmm. are forgiven. Al Gore and, and others are suggesting that if you drive a Prius or if you... Watch a certain movie like Avatar and you applaud it or if you pay the carbon offset then somehow you can uh, have those particular environmental sins atoned for.
0: Would I be right in thinking that paradise would be pristine nature without human interference would that be right?
1: Yes this is really a utopian movement and that's what's particularly scary to me because We've just lived through the 20th century which was, if any century was, the century of utopians Mm. and what we've discovered when we look back at the history, especially if you read a book like the Black Book of Communism, the utopians are not particularly generous with their view of dissent and hundreds of millions of people had to die before they were stopped in the 20th century. This movement is a back to nature. Well, you know what exactly does the ideal look like? You know, in terms of climate, if that's the worst environmental problem, what is the Goldilocks zone? Which temperature is not too hot, not too cold, just right? And and then you face with this almost farcical—I would laugh if it weren't so sad—situation where I remember seeing Tony Blair and uh, I think it was George Bush and a number of others meeting together and all trying to commit to making sure that the temperature of the whole planet doesn't rise by more than two degrees by the year 2100, as if these guys are going to stop Mm. the tide. King Canute, if you like. Madness.
0: Um, I have to ask you, before we go any further with this, really, you you have declared that you are very sceptical of the orthodoxy of uh, climate science. So could you give me some scientific reasons why you object to it?
1: Certainly, as a scientist, what moves me most, and I'm a human, so I'm moved by all kinds of things, but what moves me if somebody comes to me and says, believe this, is the data. You show me the data. In, in, the, in the green movement, you can certainly see the money, the corruption of our science by enormous amounts, multi billion dollars. That have been thrown towards climate science, basically to showing that global warming is a problem that we have to deal with immediately. When I see that immediately it makes me very cautious and concerned because we know that whoever pays the piper chooses the tune. But in terms of the data that we do have, we have very, very limited data on climate, the real data. We have proxy data going back. By proxy data, I mean things like tree rings and such, which aren't really giving us temperatures. We use ice cores. We make various assumptions about ratios of oxygen and and other elements in them. And then we can try to guess what we think the best temperatures were. But we really don't know for sure. We have temperatures for the past 100 years or so, and, and really only for the past three decades or so, maybe four decades, of satellite data, which is the best data that we have. And when we look at the temperature record throughout history, whether it's recorded or whether it's proxy data, we see that the climate is changing all the time. So I would not call myself a climate change denier. I've been called a denier as a pejorative, as in... Holocaust denier.
0: Well, yes, yes, um, that's a, a okay. dreadful ploy that I, yes, I object to that strongly.
1: Um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not a climate change denier. The, the climate is changing all the time. Mm. If we look at the average temperatures, if we choose to believe those temperatures from the distant past, they are changing all the time, irrespective of whether human beings are driving SUVs or, or, or whatever it may be. The climate is changing on other planets as well. Mm. And so the warming, we have had a warming. Uh, I think it's unequivocal. We've had a warming for at least past 400 years, <laughs> probably longer than that. But we, we've had coolings in between that. We had a little ice age in the 1600s, which was a, a really uh, a rough time. The United Kingdom experienced this as well. There were ice fairs on the Thames when it froze over regularly in winter. It doesn't happen these days. So we've been warming. But that warming is not unusual in the history of the planet. And the warming that everybody is worried about right now is the warming of really since the 70s. Because anybody with a memory, I talk about this in my book, if you look at the newspaper reports, in the 70s, governments around the world were fretting about the next ice age, global cooling. So it just seemed Mm. overwrought.
0: Yeah. um, Nevertheless, I have to say that, of course, a lot of the attention these days now is on climate change and strange weather effects. So do you feel that perhaps there's something to be said for human beings in their production of carbon dioxide giving rise to these strange weather effects rather than warming specifically?
1: No, I don't think the data allow that conclusion. and, And this is why there's no doubt that, Uh, Human beings are pumping enormous amounts of carbon dioxide into the air now. It's not primarily the United States or the UK or any of the the developed Western countries that are doing it. Primarily right now, it's China and India. China's ramped up tremendously with their economic miracle. And and there's an amazing correlation between economic prosperity and CO2 output. That's certainly true. The United States is actually putting out less carbon dioxide now than they were in 1995. And, and that has to do with all kinds of efficiencies and also because of the economic downturn. So there's no doubt that we're putting more CO2 into the mm. air uh, as humanity uh, on a whole. But whether or not that has anything to do with the very modest warming that we had from the late 70s to 1998 roughly, we haven't had any warming since then is unclear and in fact the the business of of trying to attribute the warming to carbon dioxide is blown out of the water on on a scientific basis just from the data because if anything since 1998 when the global warming stopped the carbon dioxide emissions have ramped up tremendously because of of china and india's big changes so anybody who wants to argue that carbon dioxide is the big driver of climate is clearly not paying attention or or they have other purposes, perhaps political in nature. For the scientists I must admit it's very difficult when governments are throwing so much money at you to show that there's a problem. Mm.
0: But are people perhaps throwing money at you? I mean, Have you received any money from the oil industry at all?
1: No, I wish. (laughs) (laughs) I would I I invite anybody in the oil industry listening to this to give me some money. Uh, uh, When I was a teenager I I worked one or two summers uh, at, at an oil company to earn some money. Ah, oh, that's it. That's, that's it. it. And and you're discredited. They, they, just, they just dropped me like a hot potato after that.
0: Oh, it's interesting that you uh, you, you do have an entry at dsmogblog.com in the yeah. uh, extensive database of individuals involved in the global warming denial industry, which sort of implies that you're part of an organized and funded campaign <laughs> because you're in that list.
1: Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure if whether to be flattered or offended.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, going back to... The religious question, I noticed that on your website you have reproduced a famous address by Michael Crichton, mm. and he makes some very, very interesting points there. Obviously, neither you or I agree with everything he says there, but particularly his view that religion is all about faith in the sense of not being evidence-based at all um, but nevertheless he does say, say some very interesting things and um, one particular thing was the idea that religion is hardwired and therefore somehow or other we as human beings are going to have religious devotion in one way or another let me just quote from him he said I studied anthropology in college and one of the things I learned was that certain human social structures always reappear they can't be eliminated from society one of those structures is religion today it is said we live in a secular society in which many people the best people the most enlightened people People do not believe in any religion, but I think that you cannot eliminate religion from the psyche of mankind. If you suppress it in one form, it merely re-emerges in another form. You can not believe in God, but you still have to believe in something Mm -hmm. that gives meaning to your life and shapes your sense of the world. Such a belief is religious. So what I wanted to ask you here was, do you think that this is true, that we do have this religious psyche, and that we're going to project that, if we don't believe in the transcendent God, we're going to project that onto the material world to have some sort of meaning invested in nature in some way?
1: Yes. Yes. Of course, Michael Crichton, you know, is famous for Jurassic Park and e r and all kinds of incredible things um Michael Crichton got onto this and started writing about this because he wrote this book, State of Fear, which probably will never be made into a movie because it makes uh the global warming people into the bad guys who are trying to create all kinds of environmental crises uh and and scare people and so he- he, he got tremendous pushback on this as he was studying.
0: It would be anti-Avatar, wouldn't it, the film, if it was brought out? <laughs>
1: <laughs> it would be, yeah. yeah. Michael Crichton is an atheist who is data-driven. Uh, you know, he, that's what he was essentially saying in the quote that you gave there. You look at the history of humanity, there's no denying that, that human beings are incredibly religious creatures. Religion is not something we're going to get rid of. So the opium of the masses that Karl Marx wanted to get away was just replaced by an opium of his own. And as Crichton said, of course, atheists can be just as religious. There's no way anybody who's, who visited a a country in the Soviet sphere during those years could come away not being profoundly affected by the religion of the cult of Lenin or Marx or whoever it may be. And your compatriot, uh, Anthony Daniels, wrote a A book which i'm reading now called utopias elsewhere which is a tremendous sort of journalists point of view visiting these theoretically atheistic countries and seeing just how the people end up worshipping the state or worshipping the great leader the fearless leader whether it's kim jong-il or whoever it may be and of course buddhism is a religion Mm -hmm. everybody would acknowledge that which is of course an atheistic religion so it's not a big step to go from being an atheist Having that inherent urge within mankind to worship something, to worshiping Mother Nature, mm. Mother Earth, if you like.
0: Absolutely. And, of course, this Mother Earth is constantly in our culture now, and Gaia, the Greek goddess, mm. uh, and I guess that's been made popular by James Lovelock with his Gaia hypothesis. And now, it's interesting because I do understand that to be a scientific hypothesis, although a lot of people have attacked it, yeah. of course. Uh, but it does seem really suggestive of pantheistic ideas. Do you know if James Lovelock himself sees Gaia as something more than a scientific theory, do you think?
1: Uh, yeah, I quote Lovelock in my book, Resisting the Green Dragon, to that effect, and, and he's said statements which make one wonder on both sides. The The original Gaia hypothesis took account of the fact that we do see changes with the seasons in in winter for example in the the northern boreal forests you see in winter that they put out more carbon dioxide and in summer they absorb more carbon dioxide and so Lovelock would say that's like the planet breathing you can see the the breathing of the planet and, and that's the metaphor of gaia but then in in other places lovelock starts speaking almost as if he really believes it almost as if he you know could be one of the stars in avatar yeah Yeah.
0: there's always this question in my mind as to whether people who grasp this notion of of gaia whether they think that the earth is somehow conscious in some way because that seems to be the defining thing isn't it is is this a conscious thing or not
1: yeah, of course as a Christian, you know, I read the Bible and, and you read about the people of Israel, the Jews, when they moved into Canaan, they were, there was a, a nature-worshipping people there, the Canaanites worshiped Mother Earth uh, under a different name. They called her Ashtoreth. As you mentioned, Gaia was her name in Greece and also Diana of the Ephesians, the sexual fertility goddess, Mother Earth uh, is what they called her. And so I have always wondered, when you look back at those cultures, there'd be true believers. There'd be the temple prostitutes who were giving their bodies over to people in order to please Mother Earth. And then there were the others who were just going to the temples to get it on with prostitutes. So, You've got this whole spectrum of, of green from, you could call it light green, L-I-T-E, green, that would be the Hollywood types, all the way to the dark green, the true believers.
0: Well, which kind, dark or light green, do you think the Bolivian government was back in 2011? I understand they were discussing passing laws, the law of Mother Earth to grant nature or the, mm. is it the Pachamama, the Earth deity, equal rights yeah. to human beings. Do, do you know what happened with that?
1: I believe that was passed that mother Mother Nature was given the environment, in other words, was given human rights. But that's not unique to the Bolivians. Of course, they have a tremendously well-developed pagan system of Mother Earth worship, as you mentioned. Pachamama is is what they call Mother, the Mother Earth goddess. But you know, as I as I mentioned, it, it it was common throughout you know Europe. I imagine the Druids in England also had these kind of beliefs. And today we mm. we have it coming back. Uh, Switzerland is. Has been debating giving animals, certain animals, human rights as well, and it sounds all innocent enough. As what's the worst thing that could happen if you give uh, animals or trees human rights? But I, I just wonder what what will happen. You know, who will you'll, you'll have government mm-hmm. lawyers, I suppose, at some point representing the bear, and another government lawyer representing the tree that the bear yes. assaulted. Uh, you know, it, it right. seems
0: silly. Yes, indeed. That, well, I'm going to ask you about this in a bit, of course, because obviously the, the bear or the tree can't, can't actually uphold their rights you know, and employ a lawyer. But, but nevertheless, it's, it's how those things can be manipulated for political mm-hmm. reasons, isn't it? And I do find that quite scary, actually.
1: Yeah, in the United Nations, Bolivia actually called this, there, there was a debate on this, to give human rights to great apes and to trees and such. And, and when you have human rights, I mean, we're talking about the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that the United Nations put out it means things like just like that. If you have a tree growing in your backyard, suddenly, if you have a little pot in a tree, a seed lands there and starts growing, you don't have the right to uproot it. If you do, you could face some human rights tribunal. If people mm. follow this through to its logical conclusion and are consistent,
0: yeah. So it gives it's a way of the state taking mm-hmm. control of. Your private property, really.
1: Yeah, and that's what's so alarming about this. There's the light greens, the L I T greens who are just silly. And then you've got the dark greens who are actually being very consistent. They have thought through the implications and they're utopian. They're kind of like comrade. Who was it? Was it Mao who said that? To Mm. to make an omelet, you have to be prepared to break a few eggs. If you want to save the planet, you've got to do what's right. And if people die, well, so be it.
0: And there are moves, are there not, to press this on an international level, because there's now an international Mother Earth Day, I understand, that was established in 2009 by the UN. And uh, in the resolution document, which I looked up, it says that Mm -hmm. uh, this is decided because, um, quote, Mother Earth is a common expression for the planet Earth in a number of countries and regions, which reflects the interdependence that exists among human beings uh, other living species and the planet we all inhabit. So no, that sounds lovely. That's you know, just, It's just recognizing that people do refer to Mother Earth and that it has the, the image of inter- interdependence. But do you think that behind the use of that language are really the dangers that we've been just discussing?
1: I think that politicians are, are, are really salivating at, at some of the opportunities that this whole new turn to nature, religion, presents to them. So I don't know that they're being sincere in the use of that terminology, but because it, it clearly panders to those all the way on that green spectrum from the ones who really do believe in, in an avatar like Mother Earth to those who, who are just trying to make a buck out of this. But the reality is, uh, I mean, as Christian, there are spiritual entities. There is a spiritual reality. There, there are spiritual wars going on, if you like, around us that we have to be aware of. And so it's, it's not like these things are, are value-free. If people have wrong beliefs, beliefs influence actions. Um, and human beings, we've got a bad history of, of bad actions. And so we need the moderating effect of, of true religion to moderate our actions so that we at least begin to treat one another as fellow creatures in the image of god you know leveling this is the, the big deal this 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 is another pillar of the environmental movement this kinship you mentioned it there under different names the idea that we're all connected well of course we are in in the sense that physically we all are made up of atoms and things like that so. but they're going beyond they're trying to make it into a, a spiritual concept as if somehow we're spiritually connected and And again, in a sense, we are, but the scripture clearly indicates that human beings and and all scientific data indicates as well that human beings are something special on this planet. There's something very unique about our species and this idea of thinking that somehow if we pretend like a tree has equal value to the child next to the tree, that somehow this is going to make us protect the tree more is not realistic. The reality is by trying to raise the value of nature you actually lower the value of human beings and people begin to justify all kinds of terrible things. You know, the German Green Party founder, Karl Amory, who is a Roman Catholic theologian, I believe he was, he's dead now. He said that he, as as the leader of the Green Party, wants the the whole movement to aspire to the kind of question where where people would really ask which is worse, to cut down a forest of trees or, or sell young children to Asian brothels? and come down in favor of selling the children to the brothels because it's better to save the trees.
0: Wow. Strange kind of Roman Catholic to say such a thing. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I quote him in my book so people can can Mm. check that, you know, get the chapter and verse. I'm not making this stuff up. And these are the guys who are talking at the UN. These are the people who are increasingly gaining the political power to begin to implement those policies which, you know, come from a way, this particular way of thinking. It's not value-free. Yes,
0: yes indeed. Uh, I'm going to ask you about this culture of death, as I've, I've called it, which you've just touched on there. But uh, I want to ask you also about this leveling that you've just brought up between human beings and non-human life forms. And you address that in one of your presentations by looking at the philosophy of evolution and i i want to just make a, a distinction here between evolution understood as observable natural selection which i think everybody can agree on that and and this big story of evolution in which the whole of life perhaps the whole of reality sort of is held to mindlessly unfold according to its own principles so according to that big story of evolution you say that there's this flattening of a distinction between the human and the non-human, and perhaps distinctions in general, which sort of feeds into this philosophy of mysticism. Can you flesh that out for us?
1: Sure. It's, it's one of the other pillars of the Green Movement, the, the idea of kinship, where, of course, if the idea of human evolution or the idea of evolution in general is taken as a foundation, then and I think Nietzsche, the, the German philosopher, had said this, we have to realize then we, we're just animals. So if if human beings are just animals, there's nothing spiritual about the human being. If we don't have a spirit, for instance, if, if we're purely animals, then taken seriously, it means that human beings shouldn't see themselves as more advanced or more developed than any other species. We're just the top of the evolutionary chain, but something else is going to beat us out. We're not the goal of evolution, in other words. You or I are not more important than an elephant or a fish or a cabbage or anything. We just have to accept the fact that there's nothing special about us nothing nothing more interesting than than about a, like, a lichen for instance that kind of thinking when when one wants to say well only human hmm. as in as in there's no difference between you and and a bug that you squash under your foot or a, or a virus leads some of the leaders in the green movement to say such terrible things as human beings are a virus on the planet. And what you need to do when there's a disease is cut it out to save the planet.
0: Prince Philip, isn't it, who famously said that he'd sure. like to come back as a virus to yes, deal with the population problem. <laughs>
1: that's, that's exactly right.
0: Yeah. yeah, Kind of guy you'd want to give a knighthood to, perhaps.
1: <laughs> he's, been, he's been consistent in some ways. I mean, verbally consistent. I don't know that his lifestyle is consistent, but he's consistent in that belief. Certainly, human beings would be the problem then. And if we all get wiped out, what's the loss? Of course, I would say, and I know you believe too, that that would be a tremendous loss.
0: Indeed. So the picture we have here is of the tree of life writ large, so all these different life forms, including us, are just little tips of the branches of this one tree, and yeah. there's no distinction. We're all just little tips, little yeah. branches. So this does seem to fit with the, the idea of the sort of mystic one with no distinction between things.
1: Mm, yes, that's absolutely right. The politicians, of course, many of them are, are excited about this because there's this whole idea that seems to be rampant in the Western world, particularly, that the idea that a healthy world requires increasing poverty among human beings—that somehow, if if human beings are made poor, at least the masses, because of course the leaders, it's it's fine for them to be incredibly wealthy, because they're the important mm-hmm. people. But as long as wealth for the masses is going to exist, then the corollary is that there has to be degradation of the environment. They have accepted and are teaching this idea through movies like Avatar and through the public education system that any free and uncoerced human activity at least among the masses is always unhealthy for the planet but the reality is when we look at the data again rich human beings are the healthiest ones that when you allow the masses to claw their way out of poverty they don't chop that very last tree down they actually begin to clean up their environment you know the former soviet union is, is a prime example they were empirically an environmental disaster and yet they were supposedly a society which was totally controlled. The government would tell you what to eat and when you could eat and what your carbon footprint could be. A better example is North and South Korea. My wife is Korean, and I've visited the country many times, and I've seen satellite images of both, and one would think that South Korea is just a terrible concrete jungle, and the North, which has got a very low carbon footprint, is obviously doing the environmentally right thing, and yet the north is an environmental disaster. It's denuded of all trees. It's, it's destroyed. And the south is, by comparison, cleaner and getting cleaner every day and actually increasingly a very nice place to live. And so we've got these utopians who somehow think that if we take human beings away or if we force them all into a straitjacket and just don't let them make decisions for themselves, if we let the clever people make decisions for them, then they'll make all the right decisions and everything will be happy and we'll all live happily ever after. And the reality is that that kind of totalitarian vision has never in, in human history worked.
0: One of the things I've noticed within Christianity, actually, is how some churches within the mainstream denominations, I'm I'm a Methodist, so I've I've noticed it with some Methodist churches and other denominations as well, is that they do seem to be buying into a kind of environmental theology. And I just wonder to what extent that is helped, do you think, Mm -hmm. by a kind of uncritical acceptance of evolutionary thinking in this big story sense that we've been discussing?
1: Yes, I think that plays a part in it. Uh, there may be larger or stronger currents in society that also play a role. You know, there's a general loss of faith. Mm-hmm. I've never been in the UK except for nine hours stopping in Heathrow. But I understand that increasingly you, you've got these empty churches, you know, representing a history mm-hmm. that no longer is, is present. Um, there's a loss of faith, so people are hungry yes. and searching for something else, and including in the, in the Christian or so-called Christian community, and there's, there's been tremendous efforts. You mentioned Michael Crichton, who acknowledged that, that you're never going to take religion away from human beings without them ceasing to be human beings. E.O. Wilson mentions this as well. He, he wrote a book that I, I talk about, and he, he says science and religion are, are the great powers in our world. Wouldn't it be a good idea if we could kind of harness them, yoke the two together, and create a new kind of scientific religion? And he calls that you know, environmental-type religion. And there have been tremendous activities, efforts that have been really pushed towards Christians, aimed at Christians since the 1990s, certainly in the United States. Al Gore was part of that. There's a cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York City where they have communion for donkeys and cows and pigs and things like that. But they started a, a special program there, which Al Gore helped get off the ground and get funding for, where they had tens of millions of dollars directed towards creating materials marketed to the Christian mind, to, to those people who profess to be Christians and Jews and Muslims as well. They, because basically they found that these communities that have been most resistant to this If you like, they're more skeptical. They're not willing to just believe, which is interesting, isn't it? The the faith-based community is not willing to just believe what anybody tells them. Yes, yes,
0: indeed. (laughs) Yes, it is interesting.
1: So they've marketed it. I can't remember the name of this particular program, but I think there was about $20 million creating Bible study materials which were sent to all the churches and theological seminaries and such. And so there's a real effort to so-called green the gospel, where it's no longer about... You know, Christians have a very modest approach to the gospel. We want all the human beings who are to be saved to be saved. The green gospel is we want to save the entire cosmos, something perhaps a little bit beyond our ability.
0: Uh, Well, not beyond God's uh, ability, because, of course, biblically speaking, that's exactly what God is going to do one day, and that will not be a utopia. That'll be what God does. (laughs)
1: And that's what's ironic, you know, when we we pull apart the various pillars and, and the different views, these faux religious views that map one-to-one to various doctrines like sin and salvation and, and so on. The problem isn't that the Greens have got it right. That they, that it's not that they're too extreme, in a sense. You know, they want to say that it's sinful to have more than 2.1 children, for instance, uh, because that's the replacement level for any species. The problem isn't that. that they've really underestimated the, the really mm. serious spiritual problems that human beings have the true horror of human sinfulness, which therefore misses absolutely the necessity of a supernatural solution, and instead they want to you know, solve all our problems by changing our environment, that's not extreme enough. Whereas, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. you know, we're looking for a new creation, a new heaven, a new earth. We, you know, All Christians are supposed to be new creations. We don't just change our environment. It's not like we just make a few laws and then we're all good. Our hearts have to be changed.
0: Yes, indeed. And in fact, the last thing that I want to ask you is about how a lot of what we've been discussing compares and contrasts with the Judeo-Christian view of all of this. Mm. But... Let me just ask you, and this is rather unpleasant really, but it was one of the things that you brought out in a couple of your talks that I listened to, this culture of death business where mm. you had some examples of how these kind of extreme environmentalist views uh, have led in some cases to people taking their own lives and taking the lives of other people. Could you tell us something about those things?
1: Certainly. I mean, We, we have in the United States eco-terrorism, and I believe it happens in the UK and other places as well where people will sabotage and sometimes even result in the death of others. But we do have now, as people are becoming more consistent with this green worldview, people who are recognizing that if they're consistent, the big problem is human beings ultimately and therefore the solution is to remove the human beings. There's a movement called the Voluntary Human Extinction Movement. You can search them out on the internet, V-H-E-M, I think, E-M-T or something like that. Uh, And they say, basically, save the planet, kill the humans. And of course, if you get people like that who are in political power, then it's not long before you, you start hearing about situations where they're promoting ideas as you have in, in communist China, where they, until very recently, had a, write laws that you would, you would have forcible abortions if you get, became a pregnant and the government just told you you weren't allowed to have that many children. Um, but there are environmentalists themselves who are beginning to take seriously what they're hearing. They're hearing that the earth is... Burning up, the Earth has a fever, and it's all their fault. And the worst thing that they could do is to to have a baby. their focus if you do do the numbers, like human beings eat and human beings breathe. So the worst thing that you could do is to bring a child into this world. You know, one of the examples that I cite is is a very sad case of uh, Miriam Coletti and, and her husband Francesco Lotero in in Argentina. Recently, they um, they committed suicide there was a suicide note that they left on their table they said they did it because the only thing they could think of the best thing they could do to help save the planet was it wasn't sufficient to recycle that's just a joke it wasn't sufficient to have a small carbon footprint the best thing they could do to save mother earth to really make an impact would be to kill themselves and so they did but what's worse is they also um, they also shot their two children they had a two-year-old son and a a seven-month-old daughter um, and they shot them both, and the little girl survived somehow. She lay in her mm. blood for two days before neighbors smelt things and, and, and came on over, and she somehow survived. But wow. they're not alone. I, I mentioned Carl Amory in the, the German Green Party. You know, your English counterparts, Prince Philip, yeah. calling people oh, viruses yes. and, and things like that. Yes. And when people begin to truly believe that is more than metaphor life becomes very unpleasant and dangerous.
0: Yes, and of course it would be very easy to look at extreme cases that you just pointed out there and say, well, perhaps that family was psychologically Mm -hmm. disturbed in some way, so, you know, well, it's got nothing to do with these ideas. Well, because it does have something to do with these ideas, doesn't it? Because if if that is in fact the case, perhaps they were disturbed in some way, nevertheless these ideas fed into such that they did what they did. And, uh, of course, it seems amazing to me that people can think that there couldn't be wider consequences of such views as these, given that we've just come out, as you said, out of a century in which we've had things, you know, like yeah. the Chinese Cultural Revolution with tens of thousands of people being murdered every day, you know, for ideological reasons. Yeah. If an ideology catches on, mm-hmm. it can have terrible consequences.
1: Yeah, I can mention an, another example, an English woman, I think she's Canadian, but she's emigrated to the UK. Uh, her name's Tony Vernelli. She worked for Greenpeace and, you know, various green movements all over. So if you listen to her, she's, she seems totally rational. There's nothing irrational about her. She's not a crazy person, and yet she had several abortions. Uh, she was looking for doctors to, to sterilize her. She couldn't, so she just kept having to have abortions, she felt, until she finally could hunt down a doctor who would actually give her a sterilization. And the reason she had abortions is because, quote, she said she passionately wanted to save the planet, not produce a new life which would, which would only add to the problem. So she's not mad, because she's certainly deluded. She's wrong. I think she really believes the advertising that she hears. And so she's acting rationally. If human beings truly are the problem, as Mm. everybody is saying, and if we need to get human Mm. beings out, if Mother Nature knows best, then, you know, that makes sense.
0: And yet... In reality, there's a demographical problem, isn't there, Yeah, that's looming?
1: Yeah, Europe is in a demographic death spiral, I, I guess, and if it weren't for immigration, the UK would be in mm-hmm. the same situation.
0: And there are those people who are actually trying to make this kind of idea very sort of fashionable and sexy, and I've come across this term gink, which I'd not come across before <laughs> looking into this, green inclinations, no kids. Uh, well, there's a, a lady called Lisa Hymas of grist.org, mm-hmm. and she has this gink manifesto. It just starts like this, in 1969, graduate graduating college senior stephanie mills made national headlines with a commencement address exclaiming that in the face of impending ecological devastation she was choosing to forego parenthood i'm terribly saddened by the fact that the most humane thing for me to do is to have no children at all she told her classmates i come here before you today to make the same proclamation with a twist i am thoroughly delighted by the fact that the most humane thing for me to do is to have no children at all so it's a cool sexy fashionable thing
1: not only cool, but like, can you actually hear this religious fervor in that? She wants to be applauded. She feels like she's doing what is morally good. And when you start talking about morals, you you're immediately are speaking about religion. She has a religion, though she may be an atheist. I don't know. She may very well be something else. You know, when you look at that demographic death spiral in, in Europe, you have to ask why that's happening. And that's maybe one of those larger currents. This nature religion just feeds into that particular ethos but it's that people have lost hope why do you have children you know you have to have a hopeful view of the future in order to have children if you don't have a hopeful view and why i've heard this before many people say well why would i bring a child into this world that's the lack of hope they don't have hope that's where the gospel is so very important Absolutely.
0: Well, let's bring the Gospel into this uh, conversation then, which we've touched on a little, but we need to go further into it, this Judeo-Christian worldview, really, which is foundational to the Gospel. And I suppose here we have to include Islam as well in terms of worldview. Now, the, the place where we most clearly see an articulation of this worldview is the first few chapters of Genesis, uh, which I guess is why those passages are referred to so very often. Here we see in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 27 28 at the end of the creative process god is pictured as saying let me just quote this let us make humankind in our image after our likeness so they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air over the cattle over all the earth and over all the creatures that move on earth god created humankind in his own image in the image of god he created them male and female he created them god blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Now, can you explain to us why that is a much more realistic and hopeful view of reality?
1: Yeah, that, that is the Christian view of dominion expressed there. It's, it's very hopeful because it teaches that God made this world for human beings. Certainly, you know, Blaise Pascal, the great polymath of years past, he had a quote about this. I, I, I can't quote it exactly, but he basically said that when you look at humanity, there's something almost godlike in, in human beings, something incredibly great, and and yet in some ways we're worse than the animals. We, we do things that the animals would never conceive of, the evil that is possible, and so we have this tension in our nature between being dirt, if you like, and that's what you just read, we're, we're made mm-hmm. from, from the dirt, and yet we're made in God's image, and so the Christian worldview teaches that godly dominion is the struggle for the materialization of truth and beauty and goodness and that's why it's possible to have a hopeful view of the future. Because however gloomy our beginnings were and however bad the sin was, God reiterates that throughout the Old Testament and into the New Testament. It's it's reiterated over and over that human beings essentially are on a stage. We're in a theatre. This whole world is a theatre. And nature is special, but human beings are the lead player, if you like, in this cosmic Redemption drama. So the work of redemption of humanity, not of planetary salvation, is the purpose of the work of creation. That's the central hmm. organising principle at, at work
0: hmm.
1: in this world, not planetary salvation.
0: And yet, it's that being made in the image of God, which the Bible teaches, and the fact that we are given yep. a rule or dominion. Perhaps we could talk about what that actually means in a minute. And um, that is subject of great criticism isn't there and classically there's that famous article by lynn white jr called the historical roots of our ecological crisis from 1967 i will quote from this because it's it's priceless in in terms of its influence christianity inherited from judaism not only a concept of time as non-repetitive and linear but also a striking story of creation by gradual stages a loving and all-powerful god had created light and darkness the heavenly bodies the earth and all its plants animals birds and fishes finally god had created adam and as an afterthought eve to keep man from being lonely man named all the animals thus establishing his dominance over them god planned all of this explicitly for man's benefit and rule. No item in the physical creation had any purpose save to serve man's purposes and although man's body is made of clay he's not simply part of the nature he is made in God's image and all of that is is very critical in saying it's because of that, because of man's kind of arrogant position and his dominance over nature, this is why we have this ecological crisis. Why is that wrong?
1: Well... That's certainly being abused. You know, there's, there's no doubt that people have gone and behaved badly, not only to one another, to, but to the, all the toys around them. You know, we break things indiscriminately, and, and that's not acceptable. I think Lynn White there is a, really a high priest, if you like, of the Greens, or a great prophet, if you like. But I think he's created a caricature of the Christian view of dominion. The idea of dominion is to be tempered by the idea of stewardship. At the same time, we yes. are, are stewards of what God has created. This world is created for His purposes. It's not, as White would say, just for us to you know, break our toys whenever we wish. We have a, a job to do here. But it's under the rules that God has given us. You know, Don't lie. Don't steal. Don't commit idolatry and all of these things yes. which, which people revolt against.
0: Sure, and so, I suppose, by extension, things like don't squander yeah. and don't live in such a way that you could never replace what you're using, that kind of thing.
1: We, we struggle in, in this view for dominion for truth and beauty and goodness. It's not, as White would have it, simply humanistic, as in man is the, the chief and, and main order of all things. That's never the, the position in the Bible. It's always that God is the chief of all things, and, and we are to submit our desires to what mm. he commands, in, and he says, "Love your neighbor." That's the golden rule. As yourself, and you're not loving your neighbor if you, mm. you know, polluting your environment. So there's always got to be a cost-benefit analysis for any of our actions, whatever we do, whether it be watching a movie or, or, or drinking a fine scotch or, or whatever it may be. We have to weigh the effect on others to the best of our ability. You know, we're, we're mm. fallible creatures. But it's all before God. And so white making us somehow independent operators just doing as we wish is not at all the biblical view.
0: No, in a way, it kind of misses part of the point of saying made in the image of God, doesn't it? Because the way in which we're to have dominion, have rule, is reflecting the character of God himself. (laughs) So, therefore, there's not just rule. There's also a sense of looking after and stewardship. As you say, that's sort of part of the image of God, I would have thought.
1: Yeah, it is interesting if you look at those early chapters of Genesis when Adam's job had been to cultivate the world. He was kicked out of the garden. That's the Mm. picture that we're given. But I think he would have been sent out the garden anyway because the garden was a a, a picture, a metaphor, if you like, for what he was supposed to turn the rest of the world into. It was showing him this is what it can be. But outside the garden, it tells us there was wilderness. Now go out, fill the earth, it says, Mm -hmm. take dominion.
0: Yeah I absolutely agree with that I think this is some, there's a portion of the Bible That I think is very misunderstood And I think there's a you know, fantastic teaching contained in there I mean one of the things I often think about The Garden of Eden Is that it actually pictures in some ways the temple There are indications in there you know, Such as the east facing gate and the cherubim And the, you know, the, the precious stones and the four rivers And all these kinds of things And so Adam in a way is, is like a priest He's not just sort of a, a king with authority He also has a priestly role in the creation and I think that's often missed. And you talked about just sort of tilling the ground, you know, keeping tilling and keeping. That is a phrase that's used of priests in the, yeah. the Book of Numbers. Yeah. So that you know, that that's something that we really need to keep in mind there. And that therefore entails the idea that nature, to some extent, is sacred. You know, if Adam is in the creation as, as a priest, he represents all of us, of course. We are in the creation, as it were, as priests looking after something that is sacred, not divine, but something that is God-given. I think there's an awful lot of imagery in there and teaching that's missed by a lot of people.
1: Yeah, I, I, w- I wouldn't go that mm-hmm. far. But when we look at what you just mentioned, it's very interesting. I, I have a, maybe a chapter on that this relation between Genesis and Revelation. In Genesis you begin in the garden, in Revelation you end with a city. In the midst of the city there's the tree of life and it's back to the garden, if you like. But the issue of sacredness, I wouldn't go so far. I think that is probably not a very helpful characterization because if you remember, there was this passage where Abraham, um, sorry Moses, was required to take his shoes off because now he was told by God that this is holy ground. Prior to that time, he could have walked around there. He could have done anything, cooked on the ground whatever. But suddenly, the same ground he may have tramped many times, God said, this now, take your shoes off. And, and so the holiness would have been defined by by God. And I think that would make the distinction. Whereas in the New Testament, we do see that human beings are, are called holy. He says, are you, is your body not the temple of the Holy Spirit? And that's why... We, we don't have the right to just abuse our bodies and by um, extension therefore to abuse mm-hmm. the bodies of other people because their bodies are so precious
0: yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you I was using sacred in a very well, as we discussed right at the mm-hmm. beginning of the interview in that sort of broad semantic <laughs> sense mm-hmm. um, because obviously even within the temple itself there would be different levels of sacredness I mean certainly when you go into the holy, holy, holy of holies beyond the curtain you're dealing with a much more sacred situation than you would be in other areas mm-hmm. of the temple so yeah I, I, I just meant something God-given that should be respected because of the, the, the source of mm. the gift. And I, th- I think that's entailed mm-hmm. by this priestly image of, of Adam.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we've covered a lot of ground, actually. And uh, before we begin to wind up, what I really wanted to ask you is if people could easily get hold of a copy of your book, The Green Dragon and the Evolutionary Paradigm, is it available through your website?
1: Uh, no, it's not, but uh, Amazon is selling it. Uh-huh. So I, I don't know if, if you searched on Amazon.uk if you could find it there. I know it's certainly available in the United States and Canada.
0: And your website itself, you regularly update it. You, it's essentially a blog, isn't it, your website? Oh,
1: yes. Com is, is my website. It's kind of like my own little diary. I'm not really trying to make an audience or such, but it's, it's, it's my thoughts on some of these things. Mm-hmm
0: great so if people go there they'll find your thoughts over presumably you've been doing it quite a few years have you?
1: Yes I'm interested in all kinds of things history and philosophy in particular and so this all fits in and of course the science.
0: And you have a book list I I think it's a diary of your own reading which is quite phenomenal actually when I looked at it you seem to have dozens of things in there for each month or something like that.
1: Well you know I, I think it was the historian Niall Ferguson who said that if anybody wants to, I think he's exaggerating I hope so, he said if anybody wants to to write a page they need to read a thousand maybe ten thousand pages would be appropriate before writing one so i'm i'm trying to take him seriously
0: <laughs> you certainly are yes that would be a bit off putting i think to take that too literally but yes i i, <laughs> I take your point well dr wandlis it has been fantastic having you on and we've as i said we've covered a lot of ground and although a lot of these things have been you know quite disturbing i do think we've had a hopeful discussion there at the end presenting uh, the judeo christian view of things and uh, how that's much more hope and gives a higher view of human beings that we are made in God's image and therefore we do have this stewardship role, this uh, responsible stewardship role and uh, that we fundamentally don't need to live in fear but in consciousness of God's existence and love for us and care for us and that I think is, is empowering in many ways. So thank you very much indeed uh, for coming on the show. It's been great to talk to you.
1: I appreciate it, Julian. I've enjoyed myself as well. Thank you.
0: It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for coming on.
1: Bye-bye.
0: Bye-bye then. Bye-bye.